welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. As of this recording, we are now entering the third week of the Ottawa occupation. Participants in this so-called convoy are blocking bridges in Windsor and Sarnia, two key ports of entry for trade and supply chains, as well as ports of entry in Alberta and Manitoba. While reports suggest that the protest was much quieter this week, the convoy remains entrenched in Ottawa's downtown. Police have taken some actions, but not enough to end this ongoing issue, which seems to be encouraging similar protests in other parts of Canada and likely around the world. Why are authorities unable to do anything? To look at the law side of this question, I'm joined by Michael Desbitt to look at some of the proposed legal options being floated and now put in practice, including terrorism, sedition, but also parking tickets and mischief. Do we actually need Emergency Act powers to solve this problem? Let's find out. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Hi, thanks, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, we last week we looked at a lot of the financing around this convoy. That was a big issue. And of course, the like an hour after we recorded it, GoFundMe basically said that it was going to uh, not give the, the money and it was going to shut down. And then, so our pod was affected by that. But I think a lot of the, the content in it was still useful for thinking through a lot of the problems we're going to be dealing with in the future. So I, I'm kind of approaching this podcast through the same lens, the idea that we're going to talk in broad strokes about some of the law that applies or does not apply And then with the knowledge that, you know, this is, we're recording this on Friday, February 11th, it's 2.04 PM Eastern as we speak. And we're not entirely sure how these emergency, new emergency laws that have been declared in Ontario are going to work out yet. But that doesn't mean we can't, you know, we're we're kind of big picture, blue sky thinking, and I know you're willing to do that. So, so thank you. And I think, you know, we have talked, or at least we've been doing a lot of media, I think on, on this. And one of the things about this convoy is that at its heart, there is there are people who are extremists, not necessarily violent extremists, but the, the organizers do adhere to views that are conspiratorial in nature, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, and things like this. And then we've also seen in this movement, you know, hate, you know, groups that have been described as hate groups like Canada First, some of the uh, Diagalon guys who are Plat Army guys who have, have kind of odd ideas, but, you know, not terrorist entities. I think the only terrorist entities we've even had inklings of was that some, there was a truck with a three percenter flag on and the three percenters are actually a terrorist movement. So that was a bad a listed, idea. A listed, a listed terrorist, terrorist entity. entity. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that truck was in Ottawa, I believe, right? Yes, Ottawa, it was. Not, not the coots or vancouver or <laughs> yes oh i don't i haven't seen nearly as many pictures of those trucks so i i can't really comment what's there and then as well of course there was a swastika which is often associated with a neo-nazi movements and there are of course some listed neo-nazi um entities like combat 18 and blood and honor now whether they have a monopoly over the swastika i, I don't think so but uh, either way that's not great so i guess the question we've seen is that given that there are certain people with ideologies in this movement and they have more or less occupied Ottawa and and are using almost a kind of hostage taking of the city in order to nominally get rid of all mandates, but potentially overthrow the government. Why, why is that not terrorism? Yeah. So this is a first, this is a good question because it's one I've, I've received. I think others in the legal domain have received a lot. And so the, the first thing I'd say is, I mean, it's hard to know whether, specific actors are engaged in sort of 
premeditated actions that might rise to that level, right? We, we haven't seen it publicly, that's for sure, right? So what, what I'm going to do is, is then speak on, look, this is what we've seen publicly. And I can tell you like just broad brush strokes, what you'd be looking for, right? So the first thing I think is important here is, is usually when I get this inquiry, the first thing people say is look at section 83.01, if you want to follow along at home for students of the criminal code, looks an awful lot like a terrorism offense, right? And so the first response by a lawyer is don't look at 83.01 to start. It's a definition section. It doesn't set out any offenses. This is how the criminal code works. It sets out definitions at the beginning of each part. And part two, one of the criminal code is our terrorism part. So it's just a bunch of definitions. So what you got to do is you got to go to your offenses provisions. And in your offenses provisions, you will have stuff like participating in a terrorist group or facilitating a, a terrorist activity. It's at that point, once you've identified a specific offense, so let's say facilitating a terrorist activity, you got to point to an activity that's being facilitated that is terrorist. How do we figure that out? That's when we get to this terrorist definition. And really the key there, then we're going back to the definition, we're saying, so what the heck is a terrorist activity that you might facilitate? And I think well, the one that gets a lot of people caught up in this and other circumstances is, well, one of the things we think of and is in the code is, well, if it's sort of done for political, religious, or ideological purposes, then it's terrorism. And that is one of three clauses that are indeed relevant, uh, but it is not the only relevant consideration. So in this case, you could look to, is it uh, political or ideological in purpose or in motive? And I think you know, it's fair to say there's a reasonable chance for a lot of these people, you could find a political, I mean, it's, a, it's a political demonstration, right? But as you can imagine, you don't want to, you don't want to say, well, if it's, it's terrorism, if you have a political demonstration, because uh, than all political demonstrations, many of which are, are wonderful things uh, that are free expression for Canadian citizens and part of our fundamental tenets of our democracy would be outlawed, right? So there we go. We have, we have ideological or religious purpose or political purpose. You'd have to tie that to a specific individual that got arrested, okay? But the next thing you gotta look at is, is it in whole or in part with the intention of intimidating the public, a segment of the public, with regards to its security, compelling someone to act and that sort of thing. This one's interesting in the case at hand. Yeah, right? I was going to say, because actually it kind of seems like that. Maybe, or am I wrong, I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and this is where things again get kind of tricky, right? So a political protest is going to be political and ideological in purpose, uh, in motive. And, and then the purpose is going to be to compel the government to think about changing their laws, which sounds an awful lot like this one. Right. Well, this is where I'm coming from. So, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the, the, one of the considerations here is compelling someone is different than convincing someone. So, so this is how I would, I have, and, and the case law hasn't really gotten into this, but I, I would say in a normal protest, they're trying to convince the government. They're showing, look, we have a strong democratic grassroots uprising that opposes or promotes a, a particular policy that we think you should follow. That's not like, to me, that's not compelling. <laughs> that's, that's trying to convince through words and actions, right? Maybe it is, but I think compelling is sort of doing something more like forcing your hand. Yes. Right. I did something really violent and now you have no choice but to do this lest yes. there be more violence. Uh, again, though, even if that's even if 
if I'm wrong about that, then we're pretty clearly into this territory. And if I'm not wrong about that, we've probably both seen some stuff here that could rise to that level if proven in court, right? I think some people are trying to, it appears, possibly compel the government or force them, force their hand, right? So the big one here, which a lot turns on, is that third clause that constitutes, uh, that is required to constitute terrorist activity. And that is, you got it, that political purpose with the ideological, or, or sorry, political or ideological motive, with the purpose of compelling a government to act, not to act, also has to intentionally cause death or serious bodily harm, endanger someone's life, cause serious risk to health or safety of the public, and so on. Ah, uh, so this is where this might fall down a bit. The idea that a convoy in and of itself isn't causing death. That's, is... that's right. I mean, right. Okay. It, right from the beginning, the big part was, look, we're trying to do this by blowing up a building of 100 people. And that's what we wanted to capture as terrorism, right? What we were worried about from day one was how do you capture that as a political ideology that's doing something wrong and not capture legitimate protest, which is trying to change other people's political ideology and influence the government, but is not trying to kill hundreds of people. What was extra controversial at the beginning, so in 2001, it's gone through a bunch of amendments, and so I'm going to tell you it, but I'm also going to say the threshold is super, super high, is the final clause of what, of that intentional outcome, or what we, what a bunch of us have called the consequence clause in the past. And that is causes serious interference with or serious disruption of an essential service. And here, what they were thinking of was, we're not talking about a building where you can't get out of it. We're talking about taking down the electrical grid in the middle of winter when it's minus 30, right? In other words, something that might in turn, in short order, turn back to serious risk to health. Yeah, I, I would guess where, where that's if, if someone is actually looking at this and saying, is it going to rise to the level? I, I would guess where that's where this falls down. That's where we're saying this is not terrorism. I would guess that's also where people would hang their hat if they want to have the debate. Okay. That's really, because I was going to say, like, would blocking off all trade to economically starve Canada, is that, that's getting closer to where to That's where getting is. closer. Yeah, that's yeah. Getting if we closer. blocked off all trade. Look, if you want my personal opinion, not legal opinion, don't sue me here. <laughs> I, I don't think we're there. We're, we're not there yet, right? Okay. Uh, the Ambassador Bridge is a big deal, and it's crazy the way it operates for now, but until we have an alternative route there, and, and it influences a lot of trade and traffic, but you know, it, it's causing delays in shipping in our manufacturing plants, which is pretty terrible. But I, I don't think it's, if you look back at the legislative history here, that's, that's not rising to what we're talking about here. What we're really that, talking about is poisoning the water supply, turning off water, turning off heat in the winter for a whole population, that sort of mass infrastructure you know, attacks on the infrastructure. No, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I really love the way you broke that down. So you have like the definition issue, you have the compelling issue, which actually might work here, but then like, is there that threshold, the concept? I like that idea of the consequence threshold, right? It, ha it can't just be a minor inconvenience, even a major inconvenience. It has to be really super. And that's a, a good way to put it. And, you know, that might disappoint a lot of people who really just kind of want to call these people terrorists. But I think it's probably a good safety valve to have, right? Because as you said earlier, you really just don't, you know, protests can be disruptive. 
and I think this has to be the the point. Like if, you know, a protest that isn't disruptive is probably not going to get noticed. You might get some people waving at you. You know, we like to think of ourselves as a polite society, but that's not how you um, get people to hear you. And I really love that definitional difference between convincing someone and, and compelling someone. I think that that was a really useful framework. So thank you for that. So now I'm going to shift this to a second okay. question, which, because I think we've had this on our mind maybe since January 6th, or we're seeing this in January 6th. Is this sedition or treason. And I have here the definitions from Craig and Leah's book, which God. I think is actually a really good place to start. I know, look at me doing research. So they say- It quote, is a great place to start. It is a good place to start actually. Have. So they say, quote, in a colloquial sense, treason is the crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill or overthrow the sovereign or government. Sedition means conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch and subversion is the undermining of the power and authority of an established system or institution. So each of these, they say, is a legal definition, but a lot of the law around here, I think, is a little wonky, if, if I'm not mistaken. And so- We just don't charge any of them. Right. <laughs> is we, the long and the short of it. Uh, and, we haven't used these laws in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And th there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, one, they're super high thresholds, all of them. Two, we're lucky in Canada to not have seen anything really that rises to that level, at least in, in recent history. Another reason is, frankly, most of them are, well, at least some of them are, are pretty poorly written, <laughs> which which makes them difficult to apply and difficult to be sure that, that they'd be constitutional. And a lot of them predate the charter. So there are still charter questions, for example, with respect to sedition and some of the, some of the language there, and especially some of the exclusions that don't exist which do exist for because sedition is basically a speech crime, but we have a bunch of exclusions for hate speech, which allowed it to be upheld as constitutional as an offense, which don't exist with respect to sedition. And so the most obvious one is public interest, right? So we say, look, it's not hate speech, we can show some public interest. Now that's complicated, but it, it's an opportunity, right? So, so yeah, no, it, it's, I have so many questions around this. Like, it's just, it's just interesting. I mean, cause like one of the things we've seen now is we have actually seen military officers in uniform saying, you know, rise up and overthrow the government and join this convoy because they're <laughs> engaged in child genocide. That to me, I mean, but that would be prosecuted under presumably some military statute, not yeah, one I, of these I, crimes. I would, you know, I, I would just say in general, <clears throat> and I, I don't want to say it's important to enforce the crimes we have on the book. It's important to show that they're applied equally across people and geography and peoples. And, you know, it, it's sort of fundamental to the rule of law that when we see widespread law breaking, that that widespread that officers in charge of this should, should respond to that widespread law breaking. The flip side of that is the criminal law is the tip of the iceberg. It's the most difficult thing to enforce it's the most serious thing to, to enforce. And often uh, it's not the most compelling, to be frank. And so I, I do, this brings me back to, to sort of you know, not my area of expertise with a lot of the civil injunctions stuff, but I'm not surprised to see some of them being more effective. So my guess is with, with ones like that instance that you're describing, that will be dealt with <clears throat> possibly through military justice. I don't, I don't know. I'm no, I'm no expert and I don't know the facts on that. So I don't, you know, who, who, I, I don't want to speak on that one. I don't know what's happening there, especially with specific individuals, but often this stuff is dealt with through human resources. Right. Exactly. So you don't actually need sedition. You can just probably fire someone. 
which is a big thing for most of us. Right. Right. Okay. The other thing that's interesting here is I guess the question I've I've been thinking of is subversion. And, you know, I, I, I do want to make it clear from the start that I think this is a very dangerous place to go, which is why, you know, I haven't really talked about it that much on Twitter or, or generally, but, you know, we had, we have in this country in the past had subversion investigations. They were used almost exclusively against uh, certain ethnic populations or uh, alternatively against people perceived as communists. But often these people were put on lists just simply because they joined a Finnish knitting club. There's a really excellent book, um, there's a really excellent book, Secret Service, which have, it was done by Reg Whitaker, Greg, Gregory S. Keeley, and Andrew Parnaby. And they wrote about, you know, some of the subversive investigations that were started by the RCMP and then taken on by CSIS in 1984. But I think when it became public that there was just all these people, I think something like 800,000 people, which would have probably represented a, a good chunk, of, like at least a percentage of the population in Canada at that time, they actually shut down all subversion investigations in 1986. And we haven't seen national security investigations in that space since. And so I, I guess, you know, I, I, I was doing some thought experiments, like why wasn't this handled better? And I kind of wondered, well, it's not, as you noted, it's not perfectly terrorism. Secondly, it, it really, you know, we, we can have a whole conversation about foreign interference. I think we may have to do that at some point on the podcast, but it's, this is really a Canadian led movement. It's not espionage. So is it subversion? And I, I just wonder, you know, even if it is, is it just kind of too dangerous to kind of open up those investigations again? Okay, Stephanie, that's, that's a really good question. So here in the criminal law context, so I know we've got a couple of contexts going on here, right? So I'll put one of them to a side, which is subversion, I believe, is used in the CISA to, re- to refer to one of the things that can be investigated by CSIS. And uh, we'll let you speak to that perhaps now or in the future, but we're, we're mostly have been on hold on that one, right? Espionage, counter-espionage, foreign interference, terrorism, that sort of thing has taken precedence over the last decades in terms of CSIS. In the criminal code, what we're really looking to is, remember folks who were paying close attention, we said part two one was terrorism. Uh, That's because part two was offense of the criminal code was offenses against public order. And because we tacked it on later, 2001, we just sort of said, we we granted essentially a subsection right? And said, okay, one of those offenses generally will be this new thing we're calling terrorism, right? But what you're looking for is starting in section 46, which is treason of the criminal code, and that's in part two. And so what we're really talking about when we're talking about treason, high treason, sedition, that sort of thing, you're talking about sort of section 46 to about 60, 61. And then within that section, I think subversion sort of is a, is a stand-in word for a lot of these offenses. And so again, much like with the terrorism offenses, you got to go to a specific offense within that part, right? And so the ones that strike me as um, controversial in one case and in the other case possibly relevant are sedition on the one hand, which is uh, section 59, if you're following along, and then unlawful assembly, which is section 63. And so let, let me tell you what the problem with sedition is, right? So Oh, I, sedition, I can imagine there's quite a few problems, but please. Yeah, so one, one of the problems I've already alluded to, which is simply that this predates the charter. And so the exceptions that exist for 
sedition are not as robust as they are for something like hate speech. And again, sedition is a speech offense. So we do have a possible charter challenge here, whether or not we would be effective won't speak to that, may or may not be, might also not matter. Like there's a possibility you challenge it and sort of say, well, the exception should exist and the court reads it in, but it wouldn't have mattered in this case in terms of the public interest exception. Maybe it would have, so this gets struck down. I don't, I don't know. But this is all to say, we just don't charge people with this or haven't for a long time. We don't know about the constitutionality and it's a speech crime and it's at a pretty high level. So what do I mean by speech crime? I mean, the sedition itself is advocating others to overturn the government by use of force. That is essentially what you're saying. So again, you get back to, to what we're sort of that compelling issue we were talking about with terrorism, right? Or, or an analogy there too, which is you're not just saying, I think we should change governments. I mean, otherwise, you know, on the daily, our political parties would be charged with sedition, right? They're constantly making the point that you should vote for them in the whatever upcoming, you know, whatever the election is, right? So <clears throat> it's not by that, it's by use of force, right? And so here, our problem would be, you have to find an individual, you have to attribute that to that individual, that they want a change of government, that we know that to be true, that they actually intend it, and that they intend it to happen through the use of force. In other words, I'm trying to create an uprising, a violent uprising to overthrow the government. And so I haven't been following, you know, I follow the law side, I haven't been following the fact side of sort of what people have been saying online. Saying I'm the queen of Canada and should have authority to do this is, is certainly something, but it is, not, it is not sedition in the sense of encouraging others to overthrow by violence. In fact, it's, it's in a way doing the opposite. It's wrongly claiming that you have the authority to make a change in government. Right. Similarly, the being wrong the is not wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. In, in, in a way, you you know, when this happens sometimes in the criminal code, you can be so wrong that you can avoid problems. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's being met in some cases here, I would say. Uh, you, you know, calling on the governor general to take actions that she doesn't have the authority to um, engage in is not it's not going to rise to the level of sedition it might be a call to have a different government but you know it's not by use of violence it's by use of misguided understanding of the jurisdiction of various actors in canadian parliament right so okay so yeah. not sedition probably not treason yeah that's you right. know subversion's not really a thing in the in the criminal code it's more of a, a ceases act thing and, and even they don't use it anymore so and so the one you could get to here is oh, unlawful assembly within okay that all right. Yeah. And again, you. That sounds you know, like the most boring, though. Like you shout treason, you shout sedition, you sound like, like you're, that sounds like hardcore, but like, you know, unlawful assembly. That sounds like yeah. a bunch of upset hockey fans after a game or something. <laughs> yeah. If uh, Vancouver ever loses in the Stanley Cup finals again, you know, this is the kind of, the kind of charge you see. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the boringness is, is what makes it more likely to be applicable and probably is the reason why you don't see people clamoring for it to get charge, although we'll see in a second, I think we're going to discuss a couple other options that might be out there, where the boring options are easier to prove, cost us less money, are more certain, and often have the same offenses in the end in terms of punishment. Right. So Just, let's, let's turn to that now, actually, because this is the interesting sure. thing. And I think actually you and I may, like, you're the lawyer here, just to be clear, but I think you and I are in the right mind of this, that, you know, rather than kind of going to the terrorism option, the sedition option, the treason option, that, you know, just 
the basic laws we have that say you can't say park a street a, a giant truck in the street forever is might be a more useful thing yeah absolutely you know that's usually my response to hey look at this great idea i have for a new criminal law in particular i won't speak to other types of laws but for criminal law in particular and and my answer is we have thousands of criminal offenses many of which are super broad we probably have something that already covers most of what is being suggested most of the time the real problem is enforcement right or or merely knowledge of the fact that uh, law exists. So it, you, what I usually turn to is, is well, do we already have something that covers that? And is it just a problem of enforcement? And so that would strike me as sort of the most salient question here, which right. is, right. I mean, because like, do we have every... an enforcement problem, not a applicable law problem? Yeah, I mean, because it seems to be the case. Like, I mean, the problem here, so many of the things that we've seen are probably illegal. Like, it, it's, you know, I mean, the crowdfunding issue is actually maybe one that that's interesting. And, and that's something I do want to explore a bit more, how you actually deal with something like that. But even that was just kind of dealt with through a normal everyday kind of, but even that was kind of dealt with by just kind of freezing the funds. Like it didn't require any, any special law. It just required an injunction from a court saying that you, you can't use these funds to basically engage in criminal activity. So, I mean, I think that's the really interesting thing is that there is, you know, there just seems to be a lot, like, I, I like the way you frame it. This isn't a problem of law. This is a problem of enforcement. And the problem we have is that these laws are being enforced. Can you just maybe run through a couple of options here? Sure. Let me start by saying Ottawa is in a unique position in that you all have so many regulations. <laughs> so, so we have, if something's happening on NCC property, we have NCC bylaws. We have municipal bylaws. We have Highway Traffic Act, which are provincial offenses, right? And one of the jokes I sometimes make with family, and I'm only sort of joking here, is if I follow you around for two weeks and I can't find an infraction, then I'm doing something wrong or you're a saint. Because it means you haven't jaywalked. It means you haven't rolled through a stop sign. It means you haven't stopped where you're not allowed to stop. On the NCC property, one of the ones that young prosecutors in the federal service often learn is camping. You can't camp on NCC property where it's not a designated camping spot. What do they mean by camping? They don't actually mean people are going out and camping. What they mean is those experiencing homelessness have set up a place to sleep and then they're being essentially prosecuted, right? Under, under regulations. So there is, this is, a, this is a long way of saying, there are more bylaws than we need uh, and more provincial regulations than we, than we probably need. The, the answer is usually cut back and then enforce the big ones that aren't being enforced. And so that, that would be my, start. and I'm not going to go through all of them, but gosh, you know, op open up your municipal bylaws, your Highway Traffic Act, and just close your eyes and start pointing at stuff. But I, I even wondered, like, I think I speculated a lot about this online this week, which is why can't you even just use admin law, like just to go, you know, if you're engaging in dangerous driving, presumably you can get your license suspended or if, sure. you, you know, all these kinds of things. Like, I mean, if, if you, if you told people, okay, you're on a bridge and you've been there for three days and if you're there in the next three hours, we're going to, you're, we're going to start suspending your licenses. That this, these just seem to me like nonviolence solutions and, and maybe again, to me often more effective right you lose your job you lose your driver's license 
and you get $10,000 worth of fines mailed to your home, you know, in, in Calgary, most of us have experienced because we still have photo radar, for example, right? Who once in a while will get something mailed, not me, of course, but others who uh, might engage in speeding within city limits or highway one. I would, uh, I would never disparage your driving on a podcast, Mike. No, no. Okay. Is. But I yeah. think this then brings us to this kind of final topic I want to hit today, which is around the issue of emergencies law. Because now we did a big podcast on emergency law when the pandemic came out. So I don't want us to go through that again, because I think there's a pretty good explainer and I'll, and I'll, I'll try to uh, put a link in there or at least list the podcast episode that's there for, for people to look at in, in the notes. But I guess that, you know, like I said, everything, he, you know, we needed maybe some emergency laws put in place to, to help manage the pandemic, putting up restrictions and, and things like that, that I understand. But for this, is, is emergency law really needed for this? What is, what is the purpose here? Well, the short answer is I don't know, because as we're recording this, we still haven't seen the orders. Right. right? I Which think it's important. Why exactly? And so I, I'm hesitant to say before I see it. But again, you, you do have an enforcement issue, I think, here, right? Which is that if we're saying we can point to a bunch of, and I'll get to some criminal laws as well in a second, but if you have a bunch of bylaws and Highway Traffic Act offenses and criminal laws, which appear that they may be enforceable in this situation, then, then your problem is with enforcement, not with the options you have for enforcing, right? So if your emergency laws make it easier to procure materials or people to help with enforcement, then one could see why they might be necessary. If they merely provide other offenses, which I have some inclination to say might be what's happening, uh, then it's less clear to me without seeing sort of what those offenses are. Like one thing you could say is, look, we're just going to say, you know, one year in jail, $10,000 fine and or $10,000 fine. If you're parking and blocking traffic within 10 blocks of parliament over this 48 hour period, right? What, what does that do? Well, it makes the whole process a lot easier, right? There's no uncertainty about whether you were the individual who was caught committing the mischief, whether you were, you, you, know, you get to court, this is sort of, this is fairly easy to prove, right? We have a picture, we took a picture of you and your car in this situation. So I, I suppose that that is one option in terms of the orders. But to flip that, as you say, <clears throat> often you don't need these things if you already have things on the book that could be charged. And so one of the things we've seen, for example, with the injunction is it's based on, it seems to be based on an underlying offense, which it has to be, not, not the civil injunction, sorry, the, the sort of the restraint under 490.8 of the criminal code, which I understand that the Ontario government has just gone to. And you, you, gotta, you gotta provide an indictable offense under 490.8, right? So you gotta say, well, on what indictable offense is taking place that, upon which this is based? And we and still think, don't know what that is yet as of this podcast. I think we don't know, but I think it's mischief. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and mischief since day one has been by far the most obvious criminal offense that would apply. And if you're saying it's taken place, so now we can prove these other things, you also have to ask yourself, why not just charge them? And for the, I want this to be terrorism crowd. If you go by indictment, which you have to, it, or no, you don't have to, you can go, this is called a hybrid offense, but you're saying this is indictable mischief because it's got to be an indictable offense. So it's the indictable version. The indictable version, which is being the more serious version of mischief, gets you up to 10 years in jail, which is the same max punishment as participating in a terrorist group. So, so easier right. to prove, more clear. We do it all the time. Our prosecutors know it really well. Our police should know it really well. And your max punishment is exactly the same. 
And by the way, we've just had the provincial government say, we think this is <laughs> taking place apparently widespread. Right. So I guess, I guess this just, you know, let's, I, I kind of want to end it here because it's trying to keep these podcasts on the convoy short and sweet, but there's a number of, of really interesting questions that I think come off that, that maybe we'll try and revisit in a few months, but, or a few days, who knows, but yeah, absolutely. what is concerning is that, you know, the Doug Ford has basically said that he wants to make this permanent or something like this permanent law. And he's going to introduce this kind of legislation in the spring. And that kind of, I guess in some ways it kind of raises the hairs on my back and my neck. We've seen similar attempts or we have seen successful attempts to do so in, in Alberta. They now have a critical infrastructure law that, by the way, ended up not really helping in this situation at all so far. It's, it's not being applied as far as I can Not tell. being applied at all. <laughs> but will it put a chill on that, you know, that uh, distinction that you made, which is the convince versus compel? The, I think there's a threat there to the convinced crowd. And uh, so I'll have to see how this, how this actually comes out. But I guess the other thing I, I keep thinking about is, you know, we had a, a terrorism case, one of our latest terrorism cases at Dugmouth, where she attacked someone with gardening equipment and was right. sentenced to seven years in jail. And we have a bunch of people who are taking a city hostage and may fa face no legal consequence. We'll see if they do. But it really does, I think, raise some interesting questions about how our terrorism laws are applied and, and who they're applied to and why. And and I don't know, I guess it, it always raises these kinds of questions. And you can point to issues of intent, you can point to issues of motivation and enforcement. But it, it is, when you see people talk about kind of the hypocrisy and the way that the laws are being enforced, you, you do feel a bit of sympathy, if, or a lot of sympathy, in fact. Well, and, and to be fair, I mean, the, the, the and I understand it, but the, the <clears throat> the way things are being forced here is based on a principled definition of what should rise to the level of terrorism so as to ensure that legitimate protests don't rise to the level of terrorism right and so when you're when you're seeing a situation like here where we're saying we're not seeing evidence of that at least publicly then that's just an indication of what we said that principle justification was in the first place to protect rights and so, so if you're going to say we need an alternative <clears throat> that would capture something like this or not capture the former, then we have to articulate something that starts on that principled basis, right? That says we can capture this, but be really alive to all those concerns we mentioned at the outset with respect to ensuring people have the right to freedom of expression, to protest, that sort of thing, right? So <clears throat> the flip side, again, I would come back to is like often, and maybe this is a criminal lawyer in me, but criminal law is a criminal law. Right. And I understand there's a greater stigma with respect to terrorism, but again, mischief has the same maximum penalty if you go indictable. And so really, I think that's you, amazing. That's because you, when you say, oh, he's engaged in some mischief, you know, that almost sounds like something you do at Christmas where you say he's engaged in terrorism. <laughs> that makes me want to hide in a basement. So it's, it's interesting. It, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, it, you know, it is considered in some situations a very, very serious offense. And, and, for the readers in Ottawa in particular, 434.1, sub 4.11 says, everyone who commits mischief in relation to property that is a building structure or part thereof that primarily serves as a monument to honor persons who were killed or died as a consequence of war, including war memorial or cenotaph, may be prosecuted. And it gives up to 10 years for the prosecution. So start <laughs> with going back to the criminal code and saying, we have all sorts of offenses. They're just really specific. And so the key is to find the specific one that is applicable in the right situation. And again, we have causing a disturbance, which is section 175. We have public nuisance, 
which is, are you creating a nuisance on a public street? Which includes things like blocking people to have access to something to which they have rightfully have access, right? So we do, we do have offenses that may be applicable. It's just, it's, to me, it's about finding the right one and then it's about enforcement. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the pod I, and what's been a very busy week. I, I really appreciate you walking us through these issues. It's, it's just fascinating. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more to say in the weeks and months to come. So thank you so much. Well, I, I hope not, but I- I hope I'm not sure, too. <laughs> <laughs> I share your concern that there probably will be.